turn it up. You're listening to the Marketing Millennials Podcast. I'm Emily Ferguson. And I'm Daniel Murray. Get ready, because we're taking you on a journey with today's marketing leaders and tomorrow's top stars. Let's go! No BS, just a fun, unfiltered industry conversation with the game changers behind some of the coolest companies from around the globe. The one request we tell our guests. Stories or didn't happen. A big welcome to our marketing fam. Prepare to turn them we are back. Joining us is an awesome guest, Nick Bennett, the Director of Field Marketing at Logs.io. Let's just jump into this awesome conversation. Nick, how did you get into marketing? Yeah, honestly, I, I think partly due to luck. I went to school for, for sports management, actually. And, you know, I was big into playing baseball all through high school and college. And I got out and thought I was going to be a big shot athletic director obviously didn't turn out that way, but I I figured I could sell tickets for the Red Sox making $10 an hour. And I said, this isn't great. So I went into sales and I just hated having a quota hanging over my head at the end of the day. And um, I was like, okay, let me, let me switch this up. And I actually just by chance came across marketing. It was something I never intended to get into, but now I would never probably hesitate leaving marketing. It's just something I I love. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's so awesome. And how did you get into the field marketing? Because that's a an interesting field to be in. Yeah, you know, it's it's something where I feel like in field marketing, you're the closest to sales. And it's it's something that I've being in sales, it was something I was always super passionate about. And when I realized that this was even like an actual function within marketing, and then what it actually did, I was like, oh, this is actually pretty fun. But after I got out of sales, I went into, I worked for Motorola actually. And my job was to basically do field and channel marketing for AT&T locations. So I would go up against the iPhone every fall um, around September. And my job would be to sell into AT&T uh, daily locations up and down the East Coast and just try different incentive programs, do some training, basically just trying to get them to understand. And then I landed in B2B, more SaaS, but it was, uh, you know, I probably, people ask, would you ever leave field marketing? And honestly, I would never see myself leaving field marketing, at least for the next, you know, five to 10 years. For people that don't know what field marketing is, how can you describe it? So I think it's, you know, you need to look at sales as being your internal customer. So at the end of the day, my job is contribution to pipe for the sales team. And so whatever, whatever I can do to help them, you know, crush their quotas, make club, whatever it is, make more money at the end of the day. That's what I feel like my job is. And I kind of look at myself as like the quarterback of the team. So I function or I cross-functionally work with everyone within marketing to really pull everything together. And sometimes you're look you're, you're, like a project manager, because you're needing to work with, you know, product marketing, you're needing to work with like content, you got to work with the brand, but you're pulling all of these programs and campaigns together to ultimately drive, you know, revenue and contribution to pipeline for the sales team. What is super interesting about field marketing is I think a lot of people are mistaken that it's events only. So could you go dive deep into it and say like, what is this common misconception? Why do people mistake it as events only? Yeah, honestly, because I think that's what it was up until, you know, a few years ago. I mean, if you ask a lot of salespeople nowadays, you know, what is field marketing? They'll just say, oh, you know, they just plan events for me. And if you if you ask enterprise salespeople, they'll basically say, oh, you're basically my assistant event planner. And it's the furthest thing from the truth, because it's like, 
yeah, events is is part of it, but in the last year or so, it's really started to come out like field marketing 2.0. And so field marketing 2.0 is more of like the modern day revenue driven field marketer. And so events is definitely part of it, but you know, your scope and value to the company is so much more and you're able to, you know, obviously with COVID, like digital plays a huge piece of that and being able to leverage digital tactics, you know, webinars is huge still, but then you still have like the digital events, you still got digital trade shows. It's basically just leveraging everything that you have to have success. Do you think that COVID has been innovating this field? Because I feel like people who were field marketing that were just strictly events had to pivot more than most because a lot of trade show budgets are getting cut. A lot of these big time events are getting cut. So how have you seen this field innovate over the last six months? Yeah. I mean, honestly, at the beginning of COVID, when it was starting to get big in the US, like a lot of companies actually got rid of their field marketing teams. And I I thought that was I mean, I talked to a lot of marketing leaders and they were just like, I was like, you know, you could really pivot these people's tool sets to help them and help your business. You know, maybe they pivot into more of a demand gen, like digital role. Maybe they pivot into content. It's just something that would benefit them for their career. But I know at the end of the day, it's a business decision and, you know, you just marketing budgets are getting cut, but it's definitely pivoted because it's like, how do you thrive in a digital world when everyone's doing the same exact thing? And it's just like, you know, we're at the point now, I was actually just on a hackathon um, with like 60 field marketers this past week. And we were basically trying to solve for this exact issue. You know, when everyone's doing the same thing, you have these wine tastings. Now you have these like happy hours, you have round tables, like everyone's already figured out everything that's out there. What are other, you know, digital pieces that you can do that just haven't been done yet? And something that actually came up, which I thought was pretty interesting, was using virtual reality to basically run an event, you know, being able to do everything through like a VR headset without ever having to like log on to a computer. And it's just, it's just whoever can figure out what that next like what virtual wine tasting is where you're sending them stuff will basically be the ones that that succeed. It sounds like experience is still playing a big key in field marketing, even during COVID. What is an example of something that you've done during COVID? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times people think of field marketing, they don't think of deal acceleration and not just deal acceleration is like, you know, okay, Hey, I'm just going to try something to move these people through the funnel, like true deal acceleration of, you know, existing opportunities. And so something that I've personally done was run a deal acceleration program where I worked with the sales team to say, okay, give me all your early stage opportunities that are set to close. This was at the beginning of COVID. So set to close a Q2. And I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send them each a $50 gift card to Uber Eats and they can use, we'll send a personalized note from the rep so they could all write down whatever they wanted to. There was no CTA. It was basically like, hey, just wanted to make sure that you could feed your family during these times because so many other vendors were trying to use scare tactics to get these you know, prospects to purchase. But we just wanted to be empathetic to the times and actually show that like, hey, here's 50 bucks. You know, we'll we'll reach back out to you in a couple months. And we ended up driving almost $38 million in influence pipeline from that. So it was it was huge. And it only cost $20,000. Wow. So you just started at logs.io. What was 
your pitch to basically say like I'm going to come in and do X for Logstar in the field marketing. Like, what? How did you describe like what are you going to come in and what change you're going to make? Yeah, so it was funny. So I actually had no. I was I was at Clary before, and so I had no intentions of of ever leaving. I you know I was selling to you know, marketing and, and sales leaders. It was, I used the product every single day. It was awesome. And so my boss reached out to me. It was just like, Hey, you know, it's time for you to make this, you know, make this journey and step and, you know, come work with me. And we kind of knew each other before. And, you know, the big thing was there was no sales and marketing alignment and there was no ABM. So no ABM strategy in place. So that was basically like my whole pitch. When I talked to the CRO, when I talked to the CEO, I said, you know, we need to basically change the outbound inbound kind of mentality because they were doing 90% outbound prospecting and it was only about 10% inbound from like what they were getting. And so it was basically, you know, kind of silos, like sales was doing their thing. They had no trust in marketing. Marketing would try to provide air cover, but wasn't doing it very well. So, you know, I've been here about a month and a half now, and we've already strengthened the sales and marketing alignment. You know, I've, uh, since day one, I've been working on like the whole ABM piece of it. You know, we're rolling out six cents. We've got a bunch of other tools that we're rolling out too. And so I think we're finally in a good place, but it's, <laughs> it's kind of like, being thrown to the wolves like right away and like just trying to also ramp because I've never marketed to engineers and DevOps people before. This is all completely new to me. So I'm trying to learn the industry, trying to learn the product, and then trying to launch like a bunch of these other pieces to make sure that we're successful. So what type of ABM strategies do you use? I know Sixth Sense, which is cool, lets you basically see like where each person is in the funnel so that you can see like this one pe- this group of people who are looking at your website on the awareness phase and stuff like that so if you see someone like i see these people in the awareness phase of the customer journey like what strategy do you deploy there versus someone who's more in like the potential buyer stage of like the journey yeah, definitely. So we do, we've actually broken it up into keyword segments as well. So basically there's a few keywords that are important to us and that we want to basically see, you know, where, where people are kind of searching. So we spend most of our time in like the purchase and decision stage, and then you have the awareness and consideration phase as well. We look at the awareness and consideration as more of like marketing providing air cover. So we use a lot of digital ads for that piece of it. For the you know, purchase and decision stage, it's usually a bit more targeted. We usually do a bit more personalized outreach from the AEs. So we basically have like a top 100 sales list. And then we have part of that is a net new piece that the SDR team owns. And so the SDR team is basically trying to crack into these accounts, but through a lot of different personalization. And in my past, I've used direct mail in a lot of this too. So we're we're also starting to get into the process of using direct mail, which I think will play a, a big piece of it. And it's it's something where a lot of the segments that we're looking at, they play well together and it allows us to just kind of take out a lot, a lot of our like low-hanging fruit. We literally just like launched it like a week or two ago and we've already had some success with it. So I think, you know, over Q4, we should see some more. That's great. I also want to take it one step back. I want to know, how do you come up with a dream 100 list of like 100 top customers? Like, what is the strategy of like nailing down like these are the top 100 customers I want to go after? 
Yeah, so so it's interesting. So I mean, you have to work with sales to to be able to do that. And so the way that I kind of came into it, I said, okay, sales never had like a target list. They just basically were going after whoever that was in their their territory. And so I said, okay, we want a hundred accounts, and we want fifty that are in the U.S., fifty that are in EMEA, and then out of those fifty in each of the the regions, we want twenty five net new, and then twenty five that are currently in stage opportunities that we're trying to progress through the funnel. And so it took about you know a week and a half with like the the, the sales leaders to basically come up with this list, and then basically go over and. Once we locked it in, we said, okay, this is it. We're not going to change it again until Q1 for for next year. So Mm. it took a little bit of back and forth, but it was kind of something that we did, you know, together. And if you just, if you try to do it separately, it's, you know, marketing is going to say, okay, these is, this is who we should be marketing to sales is going to say, no, this is who we should be marketing to. So it's been really beneficial to do it together. And then on top of that, we, Basically, when someone hits a S3 for an opportunity, we also trigger specifically personalized outreach and kind of another, we, we kind of look at it like opportunity-based marketing too. So we're trying to mix opportunity-based marketing as well as like account-based marketing. It's been a challenge because our STR is actually prospect at the leave level instead of the account level. So like we're having to change like a lot of the backend process as well, which, you know, it, they've been doing this for years. So to get them to just change the mentality of like, okay, we need to go after the account is, is, is a fun project. How often are you actually reaching out to your customers or like potential buyers? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to get on as many calls as possible. And like we use Gong. So, you know, I'm listening to Gong calls like all the time because it's also something where I think it's beneficial for me of someone trying to learn a product just to be able to see because I've always been under the impression like the way that I like to do it is marketing. Marketers should be able to at least give the elevator pitch or a quick demo of the product because at least in field marketing, you're usually interfacing with customers when there was in-person events or trade shows. You need to be able to kind of like talk the talk. And it's something that I've worked really hard on. And I think I have like a pretty good grasp so far, um, at least high level. So how often should a field marketer or a marketer in general talk to customers? I mean, I would say at least, you know, once or twice a week is what I try. It's, I, I definitely try to leverage it in different stages. Like if, you know, if it's more of like top of the funnel, like I like to learn like, you know, what are the the key pieces at that point? If it's kind of a, a later stage deal, what are the key talking points around that? I'm a, I'm a very like visual type person. So the more, the better, but it's, it's not always possible to hop on live. That's why like gong kind of comes in. So like pivotal for me, because like, every afternoon I try to listen to at least like four to five calls. So when you go into a new company, like how do you like reverse engineer, like where these customers are? Cause for example, like engineers, right? Like they're probably like, you probably would have to go look at like hacker noon and like all these sites where they are hanging out. So like, I think that's like a, a hard, like every new co- going into a new company, you have to, reverse engineer, where are my audience spending time? And I'm just interested in how you went in there and say like, because talking to customers is one thing, but also understanding an audience is a whole different thing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, that's one of the biggest things that I figured out quick. Like, you know, when I was marketing to sales and and marketing leaders, like those people love to talk, like you could literally just get them to talk whenever, like they 
love to hear themselves talk. And so one thing that I figured out quickly about engineers is that they hate talking to people. And so that's why ABM is going to be so huge because they would rather be served up like basically their issues and download a free app and like play around with it and then basically convert off of that. And that's where we honestly, that's where we see most of our conversions, basically people that download our free trial they play around with it. They realize that they can't build this on their own or that it's a little bit easier. And then they convert off of the trial. What type of virtual type of events are you thinking about doing that are for field marketers in general? What are the type of events should they be thinking of doing right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think basically something that people are missing right now is really like the in-person networking piece of it. And so like, if you can replicate that as po- as much as possible, whether that's through like a round table, like something that I've seen work really well is when you grab a kind of a smaller intimate group through a round table and you basically, you're just having like an open conversation. There's no pitch. It's more of like thought leadership, but something else that that's worked really well is kind of like happy hours, virtual happy hours. So, you know, send them like beer and cheese, you know, do wine, host like cooking lessons, like things like that, that they may not be able to get to do as much. And maybe they can involve the family as well. Usually seems to work a little bit better. They're a little bit more expensive, but it's it's better than any virtual trade show you'll ever do because the ROI on those are terrible. Yeah, I think everybody has to go back and figure out how to the roots of relationship building. And that in-person connection is hard to replicate, but I think that it's going to become like the new norm for at least a little bit. At least that I think like getting on a plane to go to a trade show is going to be a less likely thing for at least the next year. At least like if you have a decision to hop on a Zoom call versus I'm going to fly out across country to an event, like I probably six out of 10 times would say like, I'm going to go on a Zoom call because I don't want to risk getting on a plane. So I'm just so interested in that aspect of it because marketing itself is just pivoting and you're in a field that's pivoting more than most, I would say. Yeah. I mean, and you, so like I was, I was actually, when I was at this like hackathon this week, we were talking about that. And I was like, I don't think in-person events are probably going to return until the second half of next year. So like personally, like we don't look at doing any person, any in-person events till after July of of next year. And so even when they do come back, like it's never going to be a heavy, like in-person, like it'll be more, I think, regionalized and like more intimate. Like you'll do more of those dinners, but like I think the trade show piece of it, now that they've figured out and there's so many like virtual platforms that are out there, I think it's always going to be like a hybrid model. And I think every, like you, even trade shows, I think, you know, even a year from now, I think they'll still have the ability to maybe, you know, let some people go to the trade show, but then you'll also be able to like sign on virtually, participate that way. And like, I think a lot of people will probably like stick with that because you don't have to travel. Yeah. You don't get to do the in-person networking, but you can maximize how many actual events you go to to better yourself every year too. Do you think, and this has made people think that, okay, I have now all the savings from not spending so much money on trade shows right now. And uh, I'm seeing an ROI of doing like these close in-person events. I mean, in-person, but virtual events and more tight knit. Like, do you think that 
is going to change the way some companies are thinking or even doing these trade shows anymore, like going out to a trade show? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, like if you think about the ROI that you get from a typical trade show, everyone knows it's not good. And if you basically, it, but if, if you're at least in an in-person trade show, you can grab people, bring them over to your booth. When you make that into like a, a, a digital format, the ROI is even worse. And so when I got to logs, we were basically only doing 100% trade shows. That's all we signed up for. And so for Q3 and Q4, I, I, I took away a bunch of them. And I looked back at like all the results of like how we did on them. We basically had zero from pipeline for any of the ones that we ran in, in Q3. And um, I was just like, you know, what's what's the point of investing all this money into these when one, like marketing budgets are being cut, like every dollar is scrutinized and you want to invest into something that like is literally one of the worst channels from a performance perspective. Like you could so do so much more. And even if you grab people and like hop on a Zoom roundtable, like there's zero cost with that. You could, yes, yeah, send some people some some wine, beer, whatever, make it a happy hour. It would still be cheaper than you know some of these trade shows that you do. And the ROI would be higher. It allows you to scale a little bit more too, rather than kind of investing all of your money into trade shows. And I think it's just... I think it's just people are kind of fatigued too from like a Zoom perspective. So it's also trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, you want to do quality over quantity. And when, when COVID happened, like quantity, we, like we try to do as many as we could, could virtually, but every month, like more and more tailed off from like the amount of people that were engaging and like viewing and it's, it's getting even worse now. And like me personally, like I try to, I try to like hop, like watch as many webinars and virtual events as possible, but I actually prefer to watch a lot of them on demand um, at my own pace, and that that's been helpful. Like, I never make them live, but I'll, I'll definitely watch it on demand as long as the content's relevant. I think one thing the major ROI that some companies are capitalizing on is doing their own events, virtual events, because not only they get to be the host and brand recognition, but also it's like content distribution now. Like they have a bunch of content that they can use that is scalable and they can use it in their sequences. They can use it on their website. They can use it in marketing. So I think I predict that more and more people are just going to do smaller intimate, but like content hubs of like talks of people and for people to come and Basically, what you say, like the on-demand Netflix type thing where they can come and watch at their own convenience. Because I think that's like why podcasts are so awesome is that it's basically radio on your own schedule, right? Like you can be working out and listening and you could be on your commute and listen. And that's what like a virtual event gives you like you that you can play back is I can be working out and listen to a talk from a CMO somewhere or a field marketer somewhere instead of being having to log on at 7 p.m. Eastern time to watch a certain event. Exactly. And honestly, I learn more from podcasts and like other things like that where it's on-demand sessions than I do from pretty much any other like live in-person thing. Like it's just, it's, really changed the way that kind of like I view. And so we're launching our own um, user conference for the first time ever on Tuesday, this upcoming week. And so we're actually leveraging a ton of pre-recorded content. And then we have kind of like live pieces spread in, but we plan like 
we have such a heavy content play that we're going to use out of this more for ABM as well, but like, it's going to be huge. And like, when we were going into it, we said, you know, maybe we should just make the whole thing live. It's only a three hour event. It's from 9am to 12pm. And then we said, eh, you know, but then, you know, you record it live and it's okay. But at least with, you know, having it pre-recorded and having it on demand, like we can use it for a distribution perspective, like you said, like in so many different places. And it's just, it's just, it's really nice to have, like even like a year from now to look back and be able to like use that still. I have a, just a random question off the back. Like, do you think field marketing should rebrand their name just because like the way you're speaking about field marketing is not like how i ever pictured field marketing it'd be like i thought field marketing is like i'm gonna go to like a store and put up like just like for the b2b b2c perspective i'm gonna go put up like a tasting like thing at a store or i'm gonna go to a conference like i never thought like it was like deal acceleration and all this stuff so i feel like the name is kind of misleading to like what it actually is. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that it should be. And I, I was thinking of this the other day. Cause I was like, I don't, I think the name should change somewhat. And I don't know what, to, because I feel like film marketing is more becoming of an ABM play, um, especially like in a digital format. And like, maybe you change it to more of like an ABM title, but like you need to be the strategic advisor to your sales team. And like, so I walk a pretty, fine line between sales and marketing. Like I don't want to be that corporate marketing person that's jamming stuff down salespeople's throats. And I think they respect me for that because they kind of look at me as like one of them. And I try to say, okay, you know, Hey, there's failed in my title. And for most sales reps, there's failed in their title. So like, I try to leverage that as like, we go hand in hand together. We actually had Robin Daniels on our podcast and one of his top three things of like marketing success is what you're saying is sales and marketing um, relationship. And I, I totally agree. I think like revenue is a team game. It's not a individual game. And if you having a team that is basically fighting against each other or like not respecting each other or one is seen as like a support function of the other, I think there is a, a big disconnect between those two teams but it's so amazing when they become best friends and we have this like they all striving to a common goal which is like helping your customers one helping the potential buyers and then also just revenue like we're generating revenue together exactly and that's kind of what you want it to be like you want to be best friends with the other and like even when it comes to like developing metrics and like kpis like you should be developing together like each should have input into the other. And I had like an interesting thought the other day that, that I put on LinkedIn and I was like, should, you know, any marketer that touches revenue, would you be open to being paid like a, a sales rep, you know, commission kickers, incentives, all of that. And the amount of people that said yes, um, I was actually quite surprised because like if, if someone told me like I could take a lower base but I had the opportunity to basically, you know, crush it from like an OTE perspective due to commission and like other things. Like I would probably take that, but I think the hardest part would be attribution because it's like, you're going to probably get into a fight of like marketing says, you know, oh, I got this. No. And then sales says, no, this is, this is all mine. So like if you figured out like the attribution together and you could kind of come up with the, the framework together. I think it could work. And I I think it would only align people a little bit more. 
Yeah, I actually never thought of the the compensation on the marketing point of view. I mean, I always thought that like marketing gate got weak bonuses compared to like sales because <laughs> I we were we were driving so much impact, but we the sales was basically at some companies closing layups basically like we gave them layups and it's like and then look at how much commission they make yeah it's crazy it's like you you're giving a, a an assist to someone who's giving a slam dunk and you're like okay i get my my tiny one five percent bonus while you're getting a huge payout from this it's um i do respect sales more than ever i think like even though that they are doing it, I think like it's something that I don't like doing. So I respect salespeople tremendously, which is an interesting, it's just an interesting dynamic to be in this like, because my role as marketing ops is a little bit aligned with yours is like, it's trying to make like the alignment in, between sales and marketing like fluid, make sure like there's no gaps in the funnel. So absolutely. Yep. Cool. Um, I just want to know what is the future of field marketing? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's really going to be like, how do you thrive in a digital world? And those who like figure it out and can kind of adapt to the times I think we'll, we'll do the best, but then it's like more of like, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times ABM will like demand gen will own it or i've seen like a specific abm person but so like i own the 100 percent like the abm strategy all things abm and i think that abm is going to come in huge um for field marketers and like i'm starting to see more companies switch from like abm to abx for for more of like the experience side of it i think it's going to be able to leverage a lot of that going forward to be able to get through to your prospects and like you wanna you wanna build content for your buyer's journey, not your funnel. I think that's really interesting the experience side of things because I think a lot of people, a lot of marketers forget that like about the whole customer experience and like throughout like the product is part of the marketing experience, right? Like it's like the whole customer experience. Like if you go you step to B to C, like it's, there's a whole brand experience that they get the minute that they. They come to your website and then they purchase and then they get a, an email and then the unboxing experience and like the minute that they feel your product and the minute that they they open the box like apple's nailed this like nike's nailed this like there's companies that have nailed this process and i think b2b is a little there's some companies that have it, but a little bit behind like opening like a SaaS product you have to think about that feeling, like how the first time that they open, like they open your software, what is that feeling that they get? Like, what is that experience? And that's, exactly. I think, part of Markling's job to align with product to help them with that experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to know that, like, for field marketers, you need to not only like go up to like you know to the closed deal, like it's actually like post sale too, and like. Because if you think about it, you know, companies are in tailwinds or headwinds due to COVID. And if you can land and expand these current customers that you have through different programs and, and campaigns that you're running as a field marketer, that also plays into to the revenue goal that you're, you're working. So it's not just like, okay, I'm only going to focus on like the middle and bottom of the funnel, but you should also be focusing on like post-sale. I know you said that like sales is your biggest customer, but how do you align like the marketing team with this ABM strategy? Because there's different components. Like you have to get 
the paid team on board. You have to get the email team on board. You have to get the the social team on board. How do you align all those teams to say like, this is the strategy we're going to go for ABM? Yeah. I mean, it, it's more of like, it, it comes back to being more like the quarterback for the team. So like you're project managing it, basically like you're coming up with the strategy, but you're just pulling the different levers that you have available to you. And so like, we have like a PPC person, we have an SEO person, we have like a content team. So like, you know, I come up with like what we really want to achieve and then figure out with others input, basically how we can pull all of this together. And so it's, it's not like, I don't want to say like I'm coming up with the strategy. Ultimately we come up with it together and I'm the one that just turns it over to sales and like works like face to face with them. But everyone behind the scenes is doing so much work to make it successful. You said that a lot of customers are, you're finding fatigue. Like where does creativity play in this? Yeah. And I I think it's just like, that's the thing. Like we, we, trying to get people off of, you know, Zooms and the computers. And like, to be honest, I haven't found a great way to do this yet. And, uh, you know, if anyone out there knows, please tell me because like, it's, that's why, like, I thought like the virtual reality would be really cool because it gets off of that. But it's just like, people don't want to sit in front of a computer. We're on Zoom meetings all day, every day. Like I have like seven to eight hours of meetings every day. The last thing I want to do is be jumping on like another one at the end of the day. If you can make a gamification piece out of it, like if you tell me anything with gamification, I'm in, I don't even care what it is. Like I'm hugely competitive. And if you tell me there's something that, you know, I can win something, I just have to do something for it. And like, I'm all in, I don't even care. And I think that will play into like the creativity using gamification as a way to basically build, you know, your brand. I want to ask this question because we're all athletes here and all former athletes. And I want to ask like how you being an athlete played as you being a marketer, like what aspects have you taken from being an athlete to be like a successful marketer? Yeah. I mean, I th- I think the competitiveness, like I, I never want to let someone else beat me. Like I want to be able to try to come up with that idea first, but you know, I, I was never a great athlete and I, mean, I was never a great student in school. I, I only cared about baseball. Really. It was something where like just the camaraderie of like being with your teammates, like winning together, like it's not an I sport. It's, it's basically everyone together. And like, like I thrive in marketing when I have a bunch of winners that are with me and like people that really want to give 110% because we ultimately know all the, you know, the end goal. And especially, for, you know, working in startups, I've worked in startups like for the last like seven years, the, the end goal is to be acquired or IPO and, you know, make some nice money out of it. And being able to surround yourself with people that are passionate, that care about what they're doing and that are really smart and intelligent and bring a lot specifically to like their niche, then I think it's something that goes hand in hand with like sports. And it's just like, I feel like athletes make really good marketers because there is so many transferable kind of features that come from it. And it's just every athlete that I've ever talked to that went into marketing, they're all like amazing and they do an incredible job. I love that. And Fergie, I know this is all favorite part of the show not that this conversation wasn't our favorite part of the show but we'd love to level the playing field and have rapid fire questions so Fergie you want to kick it off yeah basically this is just our chance to kind of 
get to know you a little bit more outside of just marketing. So we'll ask you a few questions and you know, whatever comes to your mind first is kind of fun. Easiest one I like to start with is what was your first job ever? doesn't necessarily have to mean you made money from it, but what do you remember as your first job? Yeah. So I was, I was, I was a paper boy back. Like, I don't even know how old I was, but it was that. And I also worked at um, Walgreens and I I worked in the, uh, yeah, I was a cashier and it was, it was my first two jobs that I could ever really think of. Your paper boy, were you on a bike or did you like (laughs) pull a wagon? So I actually used to like rollerblade and that was basically how I got around. Yeah. That's so cool. What is your favorite brand currently? So I would probably say, I'd probably say Gong or Drift are, are probably up there and Gong specifically because, you know, Danny who leads the event team over there, like he's amazing. He does an incredible job with like the thing, the events that he put up, puts on. And then like Udi does an incredible job from like just the content they put out. Like, you know, we all get emails all day as marketers. And like, sometimes you just look at it and you're like, oh, this is a terrible email. But like every email I've ever gotten from Gong has been like 100% like spot on, like something I read every single one of them. Yeah, I'm a big Gong fan. I'm a Gong supporter. So I can agree with their top brand for me as well. When it comes to apps, what app are you using the most? Honestly, probably LinkedIn or Instagram, although about, I guess I'm late to the game, but about a couple of weeks ago, I downloaded TikTok for the first time. And like, I still haven't like made a video, but like, it's fun to like bounce around there and like, see how people are leveraging it. You know, LinkedIn, LinkedIn and Instagram is probably where I spend most of my time. Yep. TikTok. I'm a, I'm a TikTok fanatic. So <laughs> the creativity that spurs from those is just unbelievable. I know you're not a big book guy, but what is your favorite podcast right now? Uh, so, you know, I would probably say, you know, I, the ones that I've really listened to is, you know, there's, there's a revenue podcast out there that, that I've kind of partaked in that I don't want to be biased, but I've just learned a lot from it. But also Chris Walker is someone that I've kind of learned a lot from throughout the way. But it's, it's, it's tough, like, you know... <laughs> I try to listen to them as much as possible. I actually just bought a Peloton bike and my goal is to, when I'm riding, to actually start to listen to more podcasts and I'm hoping that will force me into doing it. I have a Peloton as well and um, that's where my podcast time, working out is my legit podcast time. It's like how I dive into like learning about these type of things. I'm more of a podcast person too, don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm trying to do audiobooks, I think that those will also help. Yeah, Daniel got me onto that. Okay, so say you're in a bad mood. What song or artist instantly like gets you in a good space? So I'd probably say, you know, and a lot of people don't know who he is, but this guy NF, and basically he's he's kind of like a rapper, like hip hop artist. He's he's from Michigan and all of his songs are very meaningful. He doesn't use any curse words in any of them. And like, they're all just kind of like inspirational. So he has this one song specifically called Grinding. And um, it was something that just kind of, I feel like relates to me because I feel like every day I'm out here grinding, trying to be like the best that I can, trying to put in as much as I can to like building my personal brand, you know, being the best marketer as possible. And it's just something I, I, I try to listen to at least two to three times a day. Cool. Last question I have for you is who's your go-to influencer? So honestly, you know, Daniel, I'd probably have to throw you up there because it's someone, you know, I look at, I look at your content and it's, it's try, it's someone that I try to aspire to. And, you know, I've 
we've talked about this before, like trying to just bounce ideas off of each other to, to help, you know, me build my personal brand as well. But I'm trying to think, you know, there's Kyle Coleman was, was the one kind of from a professional aspect. He was my boss at my last company. He was someone who came up as an SDR. He leads, you know, he is now the VP of growth and enablement at Clary. And um, he's someone that like, has gotten me into posting every single day on LinkedIn. But there's this count. I feel like there's a group of like 10 to 15 people that like I look forward to reading their content every single day. And like they're people that influence me from like a marketing perspective and just helps me kind of like think clearer, think like better and think of like strategies that maybe I'm not thinking about. So, well, I'm honored that I'm on that list. I look forward to your content as well. I, I think you you put out some good content and you're definitely a follow. Everybody should follow on LinkedIn. I want to leave this last part for you to let people know how they can find you and where they can connect with you, where they can listen to. I know you just recently are a podcast host, so anything you want to drop right now. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. Like I said, that's where I spend most of my time. I, I try to respond to every single message that I get as well. So definitely don't hesitate to uh, to reach out to me. You can also find me in Rev Genius, which is basically a community of sales, rev ops, and marketing folks all around the, the globe. And then also kind of like Daniel said, so we did just recently release a revenue podcast. So you can definitely find that uh, on the Rev Genius page as well as kind of like Apple and Spotify. And so our first guest was Nina Butler from Alice. So amazing. If you care about, you know, MQLs and MQAs, definitely check it out. Super stoked. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Ton of value here. Can't wait to get this out to the world. I just want to drop that. If you guys like, like listening to the Marketing Millennials, please subscribe and leave a review if you're having fun. And until next time. Thank you. Thank you.